Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, everybody. I am back from a three-week vacation, Christmas, New Year's vacation. We spent the last week out in Colorado, just got back into Puerto Rico yesterday. You know, I picked up some type of flu, which uh, was unfortunate. I, I lost my last two days on the slopes. That's how bad I was feeling, and I'm still uh, not feeling that well. So I'm going to try to power through today's podcast and then uh, just get right to bed. Hopefully, uh, this isn't going to last too much longer. You know, I, this is going around. A lot of people have been getting sick, uh, whether it's COVID or, or the flu. It seems it's already a pretty bad season because a lot of the people I've, I've just talked to coincidentally uh, have, have been sick. I want to make an announcement uh, on this podcast before I get into a lot of the topics that I want to discuss. I want to announce that I have formed a new publishing company with a friend of mine named James Hickman. Some of you may know him uh, by his pen name, which he is now dropping, uh, Simon Black. He has a newsletter called Sovereign Man, and I've uh, known Simon or James for quite some time, and we've uh, met at several different events, uh, including some of the events that that he's put on uh, for his uh, subscribers. So we've decided to join forces in social media, podcasting, newsletter writing, And so he's renamed the company Shift Sovereign. And you can go to our website at shiftsovereign.com. In fact, today is the first day that the website is live. So you can go there and check it out. You can sign up for our free newsletter. We're going to be coming out with a newsletter. I haven't written a newsletter really uh, at all. Uh, I I had some version of a newsletter that that came out, but this is going to be a far more regular a newsletter uh, with important updates and, and, and things like that. And, you know, one of the reasons that I let my FINRA licenses lapse, and there are a number of reasons for that, but after 35 years, you know, of being a licensed 
uh, broker. You know, I was a member of that club. I never really wanted to be a member. I wanted to be a stockbroker. So I was forced uh, by unconstitutional uh, laws uh, to be a member of a club that I would have preferred, uh, you know, not to belong to. Uh, but one of the reasons that I'm, that I'm not a member is so I can have this newsletter and include in this newsletter investment ideas. Because otherwise I was going to have, you know, my hands tied behind my back and it would be very difficult uh, to do that. Most people that have investment newsletters are not uh, licensed stockbrokers for the reason that you really can't do it. So now that I'm not, uh, you know, a, a stockbroker anymore, I can do it. Now I'm still able to manage money through my asset management company, but I don't, you know, I don't give advice and, and get, get a commission anymore, which I haven't really been doing that for some time anyway. I've been too busy really to, to give individual, you know, one-on-one -on -one stock recommendations. So I really didn't need those licenses anyway. They were kind of like an albatross around my neck. But if you go to the website at uh, shiftsovereign.com, there's a place to sign up for the free newsletter. I think everybody that we have in our database is going to be getting some kind of email, give you an opportunity to, uh, <coughs> to sign up. But um, don't wait for that. You just go there and sign up. We're going to be doing a, quite a few events throughout the year. Um, I'm not sure exactly the date of our first event, but everybody who is uh, signed up will be, uh, you know, will have an opportunity uh, to come join us at, uh, you know, at the investment conferences, summits, whatever we're going to call them. But we're going to be doing probably two or three of these events. I, I used to go to a lot of other events, and I don't really go to that many uh, anymore, but now I'm just going to have my own. Uh, and so I think they'll uh, be a little bit uh, more intimate, uh, although they may be, you know, large. I mean, I'm not really sure. We could have four or 500 people at an event, but it'll be more of, uh, you know, my people, James's people, and then, you know, we'll get a lot of other interesting speakers uh, to come and, uh, and, and talk at these events. Anyway, I want to get into a lot of the economic data that came out. Some of the data came out last week, and I actually was going to try to do a podcast, uh, you know, from Colorado on Friday to go over the jobs report, but things just happened, and I wasn't able to do it. So I'm going to talk about the jobs report today. And, you know, once again, when we got the jobs report, this was the December uh, report. So it's the, the final one for 2023. And just like almost every jobs report we've had in 2023, the number came out higher than what the consensus estimate was. The estimate was 154,000, and we got 216,000. And that is the headline that the Biden administration wants. And in fact, all of the media, which is you know very left-wing, uh, trying to push the false narrative of the Biden boom and the success of Bidenomics, everybody is talking about, oh, we created more jobs. We have a booming economy, thanks to the great policies of Joe Biden. We keep creating all these jobs. We created more jobs than anybody believed because the economy is so much better than we thought. And it's just another great jobs report where we beat the estimate. Well, this is just a game. They've been playing this game all year because 10 of the last 11 jobs reports have been revised down significantly in subsequent months. 
I mean, that is not a coincidence. If something happens 10 out of 11 times, it's not random chance, right? Toss a coin. See if you can get 10 out of 11 tails or 10 out of 11 heads. I mean, you're, you're never going to do it. Don't even try, right? You're wasting your time. So this is by design. And once again, that's exactly what happened. Not only did they revise down November, they revised down October on this report. And if you look at the beat, right, the 216,000 uh, versus um, the, um, the, the number that they were, that they were estimating it was like 40, 45,000 or something like that. I beat, but the downward revisions subtracted 71,000 uh, jobs that were previously reported as having been created. And these were in prior months where it was like, Hey, we, we beat the number. And everybody celebrated that, that the number was better than expected. And now we find out that they weren't because they revised them down. But the downward revisions exceeded the December beat. So we actually created fewer jobs than expected if you count the jobs that we thought we created, but we lost from the prior months. <coughs> but the media doesn't talk about the revisions. All they focused on is this December number. Now, in January or later, you know, we, we get the, the January number at the first Friday of February. When we get the January number, they're probably going to revise the December number down to a number that was lower than what was originally forecast, which would again mean that the December number wasn't a beat. It was another miss. But no one's going to care because all the media is going to be on the January number. That's probably going to beat estimates only because it's, it's fabricated. You know, they'll revise that one down the following month. So this is what the Biden administration has been doing. The media gets, lets them get away with it. You look at all the news stories that came out uh, in you know, the, the, the left-wing press about the economy. It's all about all these great jobs, the strength of the job market. And again, these are lousy jobs. Nobody is talking about what's happening. Look at the household survey which comes out the same time as this establishment survey, 1.5 million full-time jobs were lost in December. During the month of this great jobs report, we lost 1.5 million full-time jobs. So I'm sure the people who lost those good jobs are not thinking that this is a great economy, right? That's why Biden's approval rating is so low. All these people losing these good jobs, right? They're not exactly thrilled with Bidenomics. Now, what type of jobs were created? Part-time jobs. 762,000 part-time jobs were created in, uh, in, in December. Obviously, though, there's a big gap. We destroyed a lot more full-time jobs than we created part-time jobs. So the number of people employed shrank shrank in December by 683,000. That's the biggest reduction in the workforce since the COVID shutdowns. So it's the weakest jobs report, really, that we've had since we were shutting down the economy. But the media doesn't say that. No, they report this ridiculous number, this 200 whatever thousand that was a beat. Yes, we created a bunch of part-time jobs 
to replace the good full-time jobs they lost. And most of these jobs, or net all of these jobs, went to people who already had jobs. You know, people who have jobs don't want a second job. They don't want a third job. This is not good news, right? Why are people working so hard? Because they need the money to pay the rent, you know, to pay the electric bills, to buy food. That's why people are working two and three jobs. They don't want all these jobs. People would rather have less work and more leisure, right? That's why they say, thank God it's Friday, right? No one says, thank God it's Monday. God, I'm really glad that weekend is over. I want to get right back to work. No, I mean, people call in sick on Monday. They don't want to go to work. That's why people look forward to retirement, right? Because they want to stop working. So if you're going to brag about the fact that so many people are being forced to work jobs they'd rather not have, that people, you know, are taking these low-paying jobs, uh, people who are retired maybe have jobs now that they, they'd rather not have, right? They want to play golf. They want to be with their grandkids. They don't want to be greeting people at Walmart or, you know, working at a cash register somewhere. These are the type of jobs that are being created, but better jobs, full-time jobs, higher-paying jobs are being destroyed. That is the, the, the hidden secret of Bidenomics. It's a complete fraud. And the voters know it, right? That's why he's now dropped in the polls. That's why Trump now, ha- on the betting markets, is now the favorite to, to, beat, to beat Biden. Because the economy is lousy, including the labor market. It's not a strong labor market. It's a weak labor market. In a strong labor market, you just need one job, and you can pay the bills. When the job market is really weak, and you're forced to have a second and a third job, you know, this is what we got. Anyway, we got a quick commercial. I'm going to get into some more economic data on the other side of this break. So stick around. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right, I'm going over the December jobs report that came out on Friday last week. You know, of the 216,000 jobs that were supposedly created, of course, we'll find out next month and in the month after that how many of these jobs uh, were just fictitious because they're going to revise the number down. Uh, just like they always do. But 52,000 of these jobs were government jobs. That's a quarter of the jobs. We're on the hook to pay the salaries of these workers. We don't want government jobs. They're expensive. We got to pay for them. If somebody gets a job in the private sector, it doesn't cost me any money, unless, of course, I'm the one hiring them. But if you know some business hires somebody, then that doesn't affect me. I mean, sure, if I go to that company and I buy a product or use their services, then I'm paying 
for those services and the labor is embedded in the price, but I'm getting something that I want and I'm doing that voluntarily. Nobody forces me uh, to uh, go to a business and help that employer pay his workers by you know, buying what they're selling. But when the governments hire somebody, where do you think they get the money? They don't have any money. They got to take it from the taxpayer. Now, at least the state governments, you know, city government, they, they honestly take it because they don't have a printing press. Uh, but these, to the extent that there are some federal employees here, well, they're just going to print more money. The budget deficits are going to be bigger and prices are going to go up even more because government workers were hired. I mean, these are non-productive workers, right? I mean, most of the time, I mean, not all government workers. I mean, there's a few of them that actually contribute something, but the vast majority don't. You know, they're, they're just dead weight. Uh, and, and so the fact that all these jobs are government jobs, this is not good news. We need to lose government jobs. That would be good news, like what Malay is doing down in Argentina. You know, we may end up doing one of our first events down there in Argentina. Or maybe that'll be our second event at, at Shift Sovereign. I'm excited about what's going on down there. But they're firing government workers. That's good news. The fact that more of them are being hired, that is is bad news. Now look at healthcare. Healthcare was 38,000 jobs. Look, I want to be healthy, but you know, the fact that we have to hire more people in healthcare, this is not good. The healthcare workers themselves are not producing uh, things. I mean, they're helping us, but it would be better if we were less sick and we didn't need as many healthcare workers, but you can't have an economy built on healthcare. I mean, you have to have a rich, vibrant economy to afford to, to feed and to shelter and to clothe all these healthcare workers. Right? You, you can't have your whole economy built on those type of jobs, but that's what we're getting. Government jobs, healthcare jobs, and a lot of the healthcare too is being funded by, by government deficits. You know, I was watching on CNBC today, and I forget it was some uh, expert was on there, and he was warning about Social Security, saying, you know, the budget deficits are going to get even worse because in a few years, I think it's now the year they're saying is 2034 when the trust funds run out of money. Right. And now, you know, they have to cut benefits by, you know, 23 percent or something like that. Or they're going to have to ha- bail out Social Security. And this guy was saying, look, you know, we're not going to cut benefits. No one's going to do that. So the government's going to have to run these big deficits. The government's going to have to start borrowing money to pay these social security benefits because of course they're not going to raise taxes. But what the guy doesn't get is that they're doing that right now. The, the government is borrowing right now to pay the social security benefits because the trust funds are selling treasuries that, they, that they're holding on to. But these were treasuries that the government owned and now they have to sell them into the private sector. They're still borrowing, right? It's like if I wrote myself an IOU and I've been holding on to it, and now I need to take that IOU that I owe to myself and, and, and find somebody else that will take it and lend me money. That's borrowing. What, what, the, what the Social Security Trust Fund is doing right now is borrowing. You see, during the years where the fund had a surplus, right, the, the Social Security Trust Fund they was taking this surplus tax revenue and buying government bonds. So it was actually diminishing the real borrowing that was going on because the government was buying back some of its own debt. Well, what it's been doing for years now is selling back into the markets the debt that it bought. So this is contributing to the glut of treasuries on the market. 
just like the Fed is selling treasuries in quantitative tightening, the Social Security trust funds are selling treasuries. And of course, the government is selling treasuries. That's why the national debt is skyrocketing, although technically we still count the, the bonds owned by the treasury as part of the national debt. Sometimes they want to talk about the debt held by the public because they want to exclude the debt held by the Social Security trust funds because if the government is paying interest to itself, it's really not a net drain. But clearly it's a liability because the government claims, well, there's a trust fund, Social Security's got all this money to pay all these benefits, so it is an obligation. But even these phony trust funds are going to be completely exhausted, according to the government's own actuaries, by 2034, um, which is not, you know, it's about nine years away, but it's, it's going to happen sooner than that because the government is always overly optimistic on its projections because it projects no recessions ever and it projects these rosy scenarios of unemployment and inflation. So the Social Security trust funds will probably run out of money before 2030. I would say, you know, probably within the next three to five years, they'll deplete the whole thing, right? And, and, and now they're going to have to just borrow even more. I mean, it, technically, it doesn't even matter because there's, there's no trust funds anyway. Uh, but it's just going to show the extent to which the, the debt problem is just spiraling out of control. But let me look at the rest of this uh, jobs report. The employment number, wait, this was another big headline for Biden. The uh, official unemployment rate dropped again to 3.7%. But one of the reasons was the huge collapse in labor force participation, which went from 62.8 to 62.5. That is a big drop in one month. And again, I mentioned all these full-time jobs that were lost. I mean, there was a net exodus of what I say, like 700,000 people uh, left the labor force. That's why the participation rate went down, because they're out of labor force. But that's also why the unemployment rate went down, because if you're not participating, then you're not unemployed. I mean, you're not working, you're, you're not employed, but you're not officially unemployed because apparently you're not looking for a job, uh, even if you should have one or you technically need one, you're, you're not counted. Now, average hourly earnings increased by 0.4, which was hotter than expected. They were looking for up 0.3. And average hourly earnings year over year, here's another bad inflation number, was up 4.1% versus estimates of 3.9%. So this was supposedly strong economy, rising wages. This scared the markets. You know, the gold market initially sold off when the news came out, gold was down about 10, 15 bucks. And then it rallied, had like a $30 rally. And then it finished the day about unchanged, maybe up a dollar or two. But the markets were spooked by this because they think, oh, this is a strong economy. And uh, you know the, the inflation numbers are hotter than expected. And so maybe we're not gonna get these rate cuts or they're, they're not gonna come as soon as we think, or there's not gonna be as many uh, as, as we think. But, you know, we got more bad news on inflation that the markets don't even really understand. I mean, we got some actual bad inflation news today. But before today's bad inflation news, last week, we got November consumer credit. And nobody was talking about the inflationary impact 
of this consumer credit report. The definition of inflation, remember, is a increase in a supply of money. Well, it also includes credit. So technically, inflation is an increase in a supply of money and credit. And that's because consumers use credit to buy stuff. They bid up prices. And it's more money chasing fewer goods, right? That's the dynamic of inflation. And so credit, if consumers don't have money, but they have credit, and they can go into a store and they can buy stuff with credit, same thing as buying stuff with money. It's the demand that is pushing up prices. So the consensus forecast for consumer credit increase in November was $9.5 billion. The actual increase was $23.7 billion. That's four times what uh, the markets had been expecting to, to happen. And the other uh, numbers that were embedded in that, in that report, total consumer credit exceeded $5 trillion for the first time ever. So credit growth is expanding. Credit card debt by itself increased by $19.5 billion in one month. That is the third biggest monthly increase in consumer credit card debt in the history of them keeping track, which I think you know went back into the early 1940s. And of course, before that, consumers really didn't borrow much money, right? We were a nation of frugal savers. We didn't have to borrow money. There were no credit cards, right? So uh, but they were introduced at some point, and so this is the third biggest. Now, this is not a sign of economic strength. First of all, interest rates on credit cards are at all-time record highs. You would think that Americans would want to borrow less on their credit cards because interest rates are so high. But no, they're borrowing more. Why? Because they have no choice. It's either Put your groceries on your credit card or you don't eat. That is what is going on. Consumers are drowning in debt. This is not a sign of a strong economy. We've got all these jobs. Why do we have so much debt? Right? If so many people have so many jobs, why can't they afford to buy things? Why do they have to max out their credit cards? Why have we never seen this kind of increase in consumer credit as the savings rate has plunged? Now, the reason this is an inflationary report is because it shows that nothing that the Fed has done is moving the needle on inflation. I don't care that the official rate has gone down from nine to three and change. That's just the ebbs and flows of the, the measuring cycles. We're moving up. We're going to go back to nine. That's, we're not going back down to two. We're going to new highs because the only way that the Fed is going to fight inflation successfully. They've, it's got to cut back on spending and increase savings. Credit needs to be contracting. People have to stop buying stuff on their credit cards and, and, and save their money, right? Not buy things. That's what's going to take the upward pressure off prices. But the Fed has not done that at all. Interest rates have not moved up nearly enough to discourage borrowing. 
it's going on anyway. And not just the individuals, the government. Budget deficits have never been this high despite the Fed's rate hikes. So in other words, we still have expansionary fiscal policy. We're running bigger deficits than ever before. The, the government is stepping on the gas when it comes to inflation. Even though the Fed is tapping the brakes, they're not tapping the brakes hard enough to stop the momentum of the, the car. <coughs> hey, we're still moving forward. We're still creating inflation. And these consumer credit numbers prove that. And, you know, so when the, the, the markets, investors get surprised because an inflation number is worse than expected, it shouldn't be a surprise. And everybody who believes that the Fed is succeeding and that inflation is going down, they're wrong. They don't even understand inflation. That's why they're wrong. The FOMC members, including Powell, don't understand inflation. Now, if they do, they're just lying about it. But they may be just as clueless as everybody else. So the market is operating under a false assumption. People think, yeah, we're going to get all these rate cuts because we're not going to have any inflation. We may get the rate cuts, but it's not going to be because inflation has come down. It's going to be despite the fact that inflation has gone up. We're going to get the rate cuts to avert a financial crisis because the economy can't afford to pay interest rates of a normal level or even a level that is above zero, uh, but still artificially low. So we may get the cuts, but we're not going to get the relief on the inflation front. The markets still haven't figured that out. Investors haven't figured that out, despite uh, the CPI numbers that we got today. And I'm going to go over that at the other side of this break. So don't go anywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. All right. Earlier today, we got the final read on consumer prices for 2023. With the December CPI, tomorrow we're going to get the PPI. And so I won't be able to discuss that, you know, until my, the next podcast I do. But the CPI is the, the, the index that gets all the headlines, right? When it's just producer prices, it's not as important. Although, of course, producer prices end up bleeding into consumer prices. So probably a leading indicator of what's going to happen to consumer prices. But there was some hope that we were going to get a, a lower number a cooler, more benign number, but we didn't. Uh, across the board, the number was uh, worse than expected, you know, a bigger number. So the consensus estimate for the month was for a 0.2% rise in consumer prices. And we actually rose by 0.3%, which is, you know, 50% more. And of course, to get the effect, you have to annualize it, right? You have to multiply by 12. So it's not just one-tenth, multiply by 12 to get, you know, how much higher it is. And the year-over-year number was supposed to be up 3.2, and it was up 3.4. Now, the Fed is convinced that we're on a glide path to 2. Well, why does the glide path to 2 have us going from 3.2 to 3.4? 
Doesn't seem like we're gliding down to two. We're going back up. That is the trajectory that we're on. Even the core, right, taking out food and energy, they were looking for an increase of 0.2. We got an increase of 0.3. And the year-over-year number, which was a little bit better than the prior month, was still hotter than expected. They were looking for up 3.8, and we're up 3.9. We're not going down to two. We're going up. And the Fed has already reversed course. It's already pivoted. The markets are already expecting rate cuts. And as I just mentioned, consumer credit is exploding. So monetary conditions are easing. We now have inflationary monetary policy. And for all the talk about, oh, the Fed is restrictive. No, it's not. The Fed is easing, right? The Fed is promising rate cuts. What is that, right? That's its open market operations. You now have easier money. The Fed is easing back. Even if they're, you say, well, they're not as tight, well, then they're easier. So monetary conditions are easing. And we've always had accommodative fiscal policy. We've never had restrictive policy, even Keynesians, right? Keynesian economics is a bunch of nonsense, but that's supposedly you know, the blueprint that these guys are working off of. But they need to be consistent because even Keynes said, if you have inflation, you have to cut government spending, right? Running deficits is an expansionary policy. You're supposed to do that when you're in a recession. But if your economy is good, like they're claiming the economy is, and you have an inflation problem, you need to increase taxes or cut government spending. You need to have a contractionary fiscal policy to work hand in glove with a contractionary monetary policy. You can't have these two policies working uh, at counter purposes, which is what's happening today. You know, I saw a, um, a member of the Biden administration interviewed on CNBC talking about how great the economy was. In fact, one of the things he said, one of the lies he told was he talked about the manufacturing boom that is taking place under this president. He talks about this president's policies have been great for manufacturing. Manufacturing is doing great. Manufacturing is in a recession. I mean, there's not even a doubt about that. I mean, the worst economic data relates to manufacturing. So how is this guy on television bragging about how great manufacturing is doing uh, under, under Biden when it's doing lousy? I mean, of course, Trump told the same lies. I'm not you know, saying it's just a partisan thing, but these politicians feel <clears throat> that they have to claim that manufacturing is having a renaissance every time, it, you know, every president. It's, we're in the dark ages when it comes to manufacturing. Manufacturing is worse now than it was when, when Biden stepped in. But he was asked, I think it was Austin Goolsby, I think is, is who it was. But he was asked, you know, about Fed policy. Do you, do you think we should have rate cuts? And he was like, oh, no, 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 we're not going to go there. No, we believe in the independence of the Fed, right? We don't want to get involved in the Fed's knitting, I think is the an- analogy that, that he used. So we don't want to touch it. Yeah, publicly, they don't want to you know, appear to be influencing the Fed. But you know behind the back, right, their twisted pal's arm, they're probably having phone calls all the time. Listen, you cut these rates, right? There's an election coming up, and you want another term. You need to make sure I win. <laughs> and how do you do that? You got to cut rates, right? You got to go back to quantitative easing. In fact, there was another Fed official that came out and hinted 
uh, that, you know, they're going to have to go back to quantitative easy, kind of like let that slip out. I forgot. I think it was a woman. I forget who it was. Uh, but mentioned that, or they were going to have to start uh, easing back on the pace of quantitative tightening. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, there's, we're broke. The government's broke. We're running a trillion dollars of debt every quarter. Uh, and, you know, rates are going to go back up. We've had this reprieve uh, based on this false idea that the inflation threat is over. It's not over. I mean, the war might be over only because inflation won. It's just that we haven't accepted that outcome yet. But when the markets digest this, the long end is going to get killed and long-term rates are going to go up. And that is going to force uh, the Fed for political purposes to ramp up the, the printing presses uh, to, to suppress rates and to try to prop up the economy and the housing market and prevent another financial crisis, which is due to hit in March, right, when the Fed's uh, lending uh, program, the temporary one-year loan, expires. And all these banks uh, are going to be uh, insolvent because they have to return their collateral uh, to, uh, or they have to get back their collateral and return the money. They have to return the dollar they got and take back the 60 or 70 cents worth of bonds, which would render them immediately insolvent. Of course, they don't even have the money to give back to the Fed because the money went out the window. That's why they went to the Fed. Their customers wanted their money. So they went and they got it from the Fed. Now the customers have the money. And what did the customers do with the money? They loaned it to the government. They bought money market funds, right? That's the crowding out. The government is borrowing so much money, it's crowding out all the private sector borrowing. So this is a, 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 a cliff that we're going to go over in, uh, in, in January. But anyway, all of this, these you know, stronger-than-expected jobs numbers, hotter-than-expected uh, inflation numbers. This has all been a damper for the gold market. I mean, gold's not selling off. It's about 2030, 2035. But gold stocks have been selling off. I mean, gold stocks have been weak. Uh, they're near the low end of their range. The markets expect the gold price to go down. You know, I don't know why. I mean, maybe because we're at around 2000. You know, I was talking to some other gold companies, you know, compete with Shift Gold just talking, you know, about business. And pretty much everybody's business has been down the last couple of months by at least 30%. People aren't buying gold right now. Why are they not buying gold? Because they're, they're worried that the price is too high, that they're buying the top. They've been burned buying $2,000 gold, right? Because gold was about 2000 in uh, 2011. And of course, we had a run up to 2000 in 2021. And then, you know, so every time we get up around 2000, the market goes down. And, and so investors have kind of taken a step back and they're expecting the price of gold to go down. And that is having an even bigger impact on the mining stocks, which is about forward earnings. People are forgetting that you know, energy prices have come down. Some labor costs have come down. Uh, and, and so profits should be going up at a lot of these gold stocks. But investors are still spooked because they expect the price of gold to fall because it's up at the level that it normally falls. But I think that investors have got it wrong. I, I don't think this is the top. I think this is the bottom. I think 2000, which used to be this, the resistance, is now the support. So I think buying gold 
at 2030. You're not buying the top, you're buying the bottom. I mean, the new bottom, right? If, if about 2000 is the support, right? Again, it's not like it can't go to 1999, 1990, you know, yeah, it can, we've seen that. But I think right around 2000 uh, is, is, the, is where people wanna buy. I mean, that's the new buying. So if you get in here, I don't think there's a lot of downside risk. I think you're buying near the bottom. Investors just haven't come to that determination yet because they've been burned in the past. And that's how markets work, right? They get you afraid uh, to do something. So people are you know, gun shy. They don't want to pull the trigger here. My advice is just buy. I think, I think you know, for physical gold, you should be buying. You should be calling up shift gold and, and buy more gold because I think we're at the bottom. Now, silver... Why people are worried about buying silver, silver is like 50% below its peak price. Like silver was $50, $25 or you know, less for silver. Is You're getting it half of its high. There's not many commodities that are half their high, especially half their high from 1980. That's how much people were paying for silver. Uh, think, think about anything else that you bought in 1980 and compare it to the price today. It's not half. I mean, it's more like triple, quadruple, you know, or 5X or whatever. Uh, and especially, you know, stocks, investments have gone way up since 1980. So silver's cheap, but people are afraid to buy that because they're still looking at gold and they expect, well, gold's going to sell off from 2000. And when gold sells off, it's going to bring silver down. So I would just be buying. I, I, I'm not afraid of these prices. I think these are good prices. And I think they're going to look like very good prices in the not so distant future. And especially again, you know, buying physical gold and silver, but the mining stocks, right? They are ridiculously cheap, right? If I'm right and I'm confident I am right, right? Uh, you know, buying these stocks right now when gold is at this price and these stocks are so unloved, that is the trade. I mean, for speculators who really want to make a lot of money and can afford to take a risk, right? If you want to get the 10-bagger, the 20-bagger, the 50-bagger, the gold mining sector is where it's at, right? I mean, I've been here for a while, right? I've been anticipating this for a long time, and we haven't had the big run. I mean, we had a huge run <clears throat> from uh, 2001 to 2011, so that was a great 10 years. <clears throat> but most of the stocks gave back that entire decade of gains, even though gold prices are higher now <clears throat> than they were. There was a you know big drop, <clears throat> excuse me. But we ha we haven't had the dollar crisis yet. That's coming, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean it's long overdue. We've kicked the can down the road for a long time. Um, but because we've succeeded in kicking the can down the road for that long, the problems are so much bigger. And so I think the collapse of the dollar, uh, the the treasury crisis, the sovereign debt crisis is going to be that much greater. And so I think there's that much more upside in, uh, in these mining stocks. So that, don't forget, you know, talk to your reps at uh, Europe Pacific Asset Management or just go on Schwab or Fidelity E-Trade, your discount broker. You can buy my gold fund, the Europe Pacific Gold Fund. Find the, the, the no low ticker and buy that one. Uh, <clears throat> but just get in, you know, before, uh, before the next move up. <clears throat> Just read the prospectus, understand the risks of, of the fund. But, you know, I'm, 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 I'm in big on this trade. I was adding to my own 
gold positions a couple of weeks ago um, near the lows. Now the market has come back down to about where I was buying. Uh, so I may be buying some more. <clears throat> but while I'm talking about gold, the big story today was about fool's gold, Bitcoin. Because finally, <clears throat> today, <clears throat> man, I'm losing my voice here. We got um, the approval yesterday from uh, the SEC. Gary Gensler announced that he had approved 10 new Bitcoin ETFs and he approved the conversion of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust from a closed-end fund to an ETF. So now there are 11 spot Bitcoin ETFs in the United States. I mean, there already were spot Bitcoin ETFs in other countries. It wasn't like they didn't exist. They were there. They just weren't in America. Although America did have uh, ETFs uh, where you could buy Bitcoin futures, pretty much the same thing, right? You're still betting on the direction of Bitcoin, right? It doesn't matter whether your uh, ETF is spot or futures. I mean, you're not using the Bitcoin for anything, not like anybody's using the Bitcoin. You're just betting on the direction of the price. And so you could bet on the direction with a futures e ETF the same way you can with a spot, right? It's really a distinction without a difference. It doesn't matter, right? It's all a bunch of hype. And of course, you had all kinds of stocks, micro strategy, you know, that you could buy and a number of other stocks that are proxies for Bitcoin. Uh, so it's not like investors didn't have a way to buy Bitcoin until today when these ETFs, these now 11 ETFs began trading. It's all a bunch of hype. What they're claiming, the Bitcoin pumpers, is that now <laughs> that you can buy these ETFs, well, all this institutional demand that previously was like, you know, not, not there, right? There's all these institutions like, God, I really want to buy some Bitcoin, but I can't do it because there's no spot ETF. I mean, otherwise, I'd be buying it. But because I don't have a U.S. listed spot ETF, I'm going to ignore all the other ways I could buy Bitcoin, including just going out and buying Bitcoin. I mean, supposedly, what's so innovative about Bitcoin, why it's so great, is because you don't require any kind of counterparties. You could just buy it, you have your own wallet, you have your own keys, right? And you don't need a third party, you don't need an intermediary, you don't need to pay any storage fees. This is supposedly the, the beauty of Bitcoin. But all that is defeated if you're buying an ETF, right? You're, you're trusting a third party, it's not your keys, right? You're paying a storage fee, what the hell? I mean, you know, they're talking about all these people, you know, they wanna speculate on Bitcoin, I was watching again on CNBC today, which was like a parade of Bitcoin pumpers, one after another. This is a great day for Bitcoin. This is this is a watershed event, right? This is you know historic, monumental, right? All a bunch of hype. There wasn't one guy that came on, you know, to express the other side of the trade, like the bearish case for for Bitcoin. I mean, CNBC is trying to get their people to buy their audience. Of course, Gary Gensler, even though he approved it. He said nothing but negative things. It's very risky. Be careful. It's just for criminals, right? It's like he didn't even really want to approve it. In fact, the only people at the SEC who voted against it were a couple of Democrats. So the Republicans, I guess, voted for it. Um, um, but, you know, they're, they're talking about how this is revolutionary. And so I'm listening to Elarian, right? And he says, yeah, this is great for Bitcoin. It's fantastic. But it's irrelevant 
for Bitcoin as a currency. He said this is going to do nothing to uh, further Bitcoin uh, in its you know, goal of being a global currency, right? a, a payment mechanism. He said it's great for Bitcoin as an investment, right? Because now it's easier to invest in Bitcoin, you know, because you can buy these 11 ETFs. Um, but he said correctly that it doesn't do anything to make Bitcoin more viable as a digital currency, which is true. And if, despite the fact that Bitcoin has been around for all these years, it's no closer to being used as money than it was when it first started. Right, go into the supermarket. You don't see prices in Bitcoin. You don't see, you know, Bitcoin accepted here. It's not there. It's all gambling. And what the, the, the part that's important is, so if Bitcoin is not a currency, if it's not a digital currency, what the hell are you investing in when you're buying these ETFs? What is its purpose? What is its use? What is its utility? It's nothing. People are just gambling on the price. And why do we need 11 of these ETFs? Right. Does that mean, oh, this thing is so good, we need 11 ETFs that do the exact same thing? No, it's because all these companies think that the public is that dumb that they're going to buy this stuff and they want, you know, they want some of the fees. Everybody is under the belief, right? It's like, if you build it, they will come, like the field of dreams. If we build a Bitcoin ETF, investors are just going to come. They're all going to want this product just because we have it out there. It's all hype, it's all nothing. You know, if there really was all this demand for a Bitcoin ETF, for months and months and months, people could have bought the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. I mean, they did, the discount narrowed considerably, but it never even went away. I think as of yesterday, right, the day before the approval, it was still trading at about a 6% discount to NAV. And now it's an ETF. So why would you have to wait? Just buy the Bitcoin Grayscale ETF and just wait for the conversion. And in fact, for all the fanfare from today, almost all the Bitcoin-related uh, stocks uh, closed near the lows of the day for a loss. They all surrendered their early morning gains. Uh, all of the uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs closed negative, right? They, they closed below where they open for trading. So they all lost value on the first day. So where was this big uh, watershed event? Where was all this buying? There was selling. Now the Grayscale Trust closed up a little bit, but that's because it's you can now get out, right? More, and, and it was still at a discount to NAV. I assume now that that discount should be, should be gone uh, now that you can get out. But I think rather than this watershed event that's gonna result in all this buying, I think it's going to result in a bunch of selling. I think a lot of the money that's been trapped in the Grayscale Trust is now going to be set free. And, you know, I was watching Barry Schoenstein on CNBC today, and he was talking about how happy he was, and he couldn't sleep, and he's so excited, and this is so great. This is horrible news for Grayscale. First of all, they announced that they were cutting their fees from 2% to 1.5%. So they lose 25% of their revenue. Why is that such a great thing, right? If you're, you know, you're, you're on grayscale, they're making all this money, but it's not a big enough cut because their competitors are charging 25 basis points, 30 basis points, 40 basis points. How are you going to charge 150 basis points? How do you justify that uh, premium? Because 
these are static products. You're not doing anything. They're not trading the Bitcoin. They're just holding it for you, which of course you could do it yourself for free, but they're just holding it and doing nothing. So why should they charge you one and a half percent? I mean, that's the type of fee that you charge when you're actively managing a portfolio. The difference between what I do, active management of a portfolio, if you go into a, a, a passive investment, like a, a, you know, a fixed basket, an ETF where it's static, the fees are low. Why? Well, because you don't have to do anything. I have five or six uh, CFAs that I pay large salaries to. We do a lot of work to uh, actively manage your portfolio. And so I got to charge you extra for that. If we didn't do any work at all, if I just bought an index and did nothing, well, I could charge a lot less money. Well, what the Grayscale Trust is trying to do, they're trying to charge you money <laughs> as if you know they were actively managing your portfolio when they're doing nothing. Now, they did nothing at 2% because they were the only game in town, right? There was no other competition. Uh, although there started to be other ways of buying Bitcoin, which is why the thing traded at a huge discount. Why did it go from a 30 or 40% premium to a, almost a 50% discount? Because people didn't want it, even though it was there. And I kept pointing out, why aren't all these institutions, if there's all this demand for the institutions, why wouldn't they buy the GBTC at a 40% discount? I mean, it's there. They didn't want it. So this is all hype. There is no you know, watershed event. There's no, you don't have a bunch of people who have been dying to buy Bitcoin and who are now going to buy it. Now, I can see if they can con people into thinking, but these ETFs are going to draw in all this new buying, and that's going to push up the price, right? Because we have a limited supply. And if everybody starts to buy these ETFs because they think other people are going to buy the ETFs, and then the, all the ETFs have to buy all this Bitcoin, well, yeah, then the price is going to keep going up. And then more people are going to be attracted to the rising price and they're going to want to buy. And so people are thinking maybe there's just going to be this huge speculative bubble. The problem is we've already had a huge speculative bubble. I don't think we're going to have another bubble on top of the bubble we already have. I don't think that there's going to be a new round of ETF buyers that are going to let everybody else out of jail, that they're going to be the new bag holders and the people that are currently in Bitcoin are going to be able to get out uh, to this swarm of institutional or investors who now all of a sudden, after all these years of watching Bitcoin go from pennies to 40, uh, 46,000, wherever it is, that now all of a sudden, okay, now I'm going to buy. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I don't think people are that dumb. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I've, I've overestimated uh, intelligence of investors for, for a long time. So yeah, maybe, maybe people are dumb enough to buy this. We'll see. But I think too many people are betting on it. Too many people think it's a sure thing. You know, all these Wall Street firms, right? They're misjudging the demand out there for this product. And I also think there's going to be a lot of regulatory problems because, you know, Gary Gensler doesn't like these cryptocurrencies. And, um, so, yeah, he, he got the approval of the ETFs, but that doesn't mean he's not going to come down uh, with some regulations that are going to further impede the viability of, of, of crypto, not just, not just Bitcoin. So, yeah, everybody is celebrating the media. In the meantime, they're ignoring gold. Right? They're ignoring gold stocks. You know, everybody is focused on this you know, sideshow. Right? Uh, but the, the main event 
right? The center ring, what people really should be focusing on is gold when it comes to inflation and the dollar and what's happening. Gold can do all the things that people pretend Bitcoin can do but can't, right? Because now they're saying it doesn't matter, right, that it's not a currency because it's, it's digital gold. It's not digital gold because it doesn't have any of gold's properties. You can't be digital gold just like you can't be digital food, right? You can't eat digital food. Uh, you can't get any substance out of digital food. If you have a diet of digital food, you're going to starve to death, right? So it can look like food, but it can't substitute for food. That's the same thing with Bitcoin. You can make it look like gold by depicting it as a coin with the color gold, but that's the only properties it has. You can't do anything with a picture of gold. Yeah, you need actual gold, and that is the value. That is the utility that you have. That is the store value. People keep saying, well, people are buying Bitcoin as a store value. Well, what the hell is it storing? I mean, if it isn't even a currency, what value are you storing? You're storing nothing. It's price. You can't store a price. Price just depends on supply and demand. When you're storing gold, you're storing the underlying value of the metal. That metal will be here till the end of time. It's been here from the beginning of time, right? It's not going anywhere. And the properties that gold has will be available to whoever owns the gold you own today. In a thousand years, whoever owns that gold will have all sorts of things they can do with it, right? Today, if you own Bitcoin, you can't do anything with it. You can give it to somebody else. That's about it. But the person who gets it can't do anything more than the person who he got it from. Right? It's just a big hot potato. Uh, and, you know, or the music is going to stop. And, you know, if you're still still in, you're, you're out of the game. All right. So that's it for today's podcast, everybody. Again, don't forget, uh, if you like the podcast, give it a thumbs up. Don't forget to subscribe uh, to the YouTube channel. Uh, you know, on my uh, Twitter account, I'm in the last stretch now. I'm at over 990,000 uh, Twitter or X followers. So I've just got my last 10,000, 1% to get to a million Twitter followers. So if you're not following me on Twitter right now, follow me and uh, get your friends to follow me. So I get up to, uh, up to 1 million, uh, followers. And again, as I said, shiftsovereign.com is the new website for my new publishing company, uh, that I've formed with James Hickman. So go check out that what's on that website. We got a lot more content that's going to come out. A lot of interesting things are going to be happening. I'm going to be, you know, communicating a lot with the Shift Sovereign uh, subscribers in a way that I've really never done in the past, uh, you know, in, in that format. Anyway, uh, bye for now, and I'll be back again next week.